Welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest uh, space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry of the EAA Aviation Museum. And we are just finishing up our first hour here. This is minute 59, so we're, we've got we're an hour in the show, and right on time, everything's going to hell. So... <laughs> um, poor, uh, you know, Jack Swigert's looking at the uh, at the gauges and mentioning that if it doesn't work, they're not going to have enough power to get home. And, and sure enough, true to form, the meter just goes down to zero, and everybody's screaming and swearing at their uh, assorted consoles and stuff. So kind of a bad day up there in uh, uh, in Aquarius, and uh, yeah, it's just going to be a rough a rough day. So, but uh, interesting, uh, interesting look at everybody that reacts to this at the same time. I mean, we go back to uh, Clint Howard as the ecom, and he can see what's going on there just as just as well as those uh, poor guys up in the uh, up in Apollo are doing. You know, and, and shared data is not always happy data. We were talking offline about how much uh, you know the, the people working on this, uh, not just you know not just in at NASA. But uh, also at you know Grumman and the support staff for the uh, for the lunar module could see what was what was happening at the t- same time, and uh, one of the one of my favorite books about the lunar module is uh, written by the the fellow that was the project manager, uh, Tom Kelly from Grumman. Uh, it, if you if you are building your uh, space library, as I know we all are, <laughs> I, I can strongly <laughs> recommend the book uh, Moonlander, How We Developed the Apollo Lunar Module by Thomas J. Kelly. Please get that book because it really gives you some amazing insights on what it was like uh, building far beyond that, that great Apollo 9 episode that was, uh, was in From the Earth to the Moon. And actually, I think it was based on based on that particular, this particular book. Yeah, the whole episode is actually about the LEM. Uh, it's called Spider. And uh, it's great, great episode. It's, it's yeah, it's one of my favorites of the, of the series. Yeah, um, I, I wanted to read a, a short paragraph out of it uh, just to give you an idea of not only was you know we this movie uh, it, it has to because it's 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 only got a couple of hours to tell its story and we've gone through one hour of it. The movie kind of focuses on mission control doing things, but there's a whole bunch of people in the back room, and uh, this is a pretty uh, this paragraph that I'm going to read has a pretty good background as to uh, how big that, that grouping was. It said our Bethpage Long Island Center had four consoles with the same video displays as the LEM Instruments readings beamed from space in real time, as did the Mission Control Center. We were able to listen to the flight director, flight controllers, and astronauts on the audio network and talk by telephone with our Grumman people on the scene in Houston. When necessary, we could call our subcontractors, suppliers, and consultants from all over the country. This was the first Apollo mission for which I had not been in the uh, span room in Houston. That's the, uh, the, 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 the support groups in Houston. As close to the center of the action as spacecraft contractors were allowed, despite the great distance out across inform- uh, our access to information and ability to participate in problem solving from Bethpage were excellent. So, you know, interesting way before the Internet, they, they had a, a good chance to teleconference and share data from, uh, from so far away. I always wondered, uh, you know, how, especially on 13, how nervous is, you know, especially the way that the the Grumman guys are kind of depicted uh, in the film. You know, I always wondered, like, how, you know, nervous you had to be because eventually 
this this thing you built to just do one specific role is gonna have to do a bunch. Yeah. And and you know, man, that had to, there had to be some pressure there. Oh, I, I would think there must have been a lot of you know. I would think air sickness bags were probably in everybody's desk drawers <laughs> when the <laughs> when the phone rang. But uh, yeah, it must have been a, a just a high tense situation. A lot of Maylocks getting getting drunk and uh, uh, you know people smoking cigarettes back to back. So it, it probably was just a you know a really really rough go. But again, all these people knew their parts, and it was. I mean, you had the experts. Nobody knew more about the lunar module than the people that were on the phone. And, um, you know, I mean, imagine having a, a car problem and you could call, you know, right back to the factory line and say, how did you make that? Um, it's, yeah. it's that, yeah. you know, it was that, that grouping. Yeah. Um, but uh, now you had, you had talked with some folks uh, in Mission Control about this particular minute that, it, well, all this is going down, how, yeah. uh, how yeah. things have changed so rapidly. So uh, a few years ago, we had uh, Apollo 13 event uh, here at our uh, facility and, um, we, of course, brought uh, uh, Gene Kranz to represent Mission Control, but with him, he brought uh, Bill Reeves, and um, he uh, uh, was telling us, and I kind of confirmed with, with Fredo, with Fred Hayes, that they had ran a simulation once using the LEM as a lifeboat, and there's a lot of stuff that didn't happen in the sim that happened in, in the real-time mission here. But the, the outlying thing was that they had done that. And the title of that simulation was Lifeboat Lem. And um, when this was all going down, you know, they figured out that they were only going to have 15 minutes to power up the Lem, which takes like three and a half hours or something like that. Uh, one of the guys talking to Fred just said, Fred, Lifeboat Lem. And Fred Hayes immediately went down and started powering up the lunar module. Uh, mm -hmm. So there was never an actual order given. Uh, they were like, Fred was just such a sharp guy that that's all they had to say. And he immediately knew right what he was, right what he, they were talking about uh, and went and started it. The, the big thing that Gene Kranz picked up on and pointed out while we were having this conversation was that the simulation, they did use the LEM as a lifeboat. However, they had never powered down the, uh, the command module and powered up the LEM all at the same time. Wow. Uh, that is something that was never simulated. Um, so its first go was, was, yeah. as you see it in the movie. Uh, so I, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we were talking yesterday about how they're, you know, they, the, the lessons learned now they, they know how to do that. Um, I'm sure they were, they were taking copious notes and trying to remember where everything is on this thing. Um, as, as you said before that the, uh, a couple of days back, we were talking about the biggest problem they were having was everybody was doing something like the mission control was doing, was planning out suggestions and meanwhile the guys up in space were flipping switches and things so it's kind of hard to remember what you know who set what where and uh, that's gonna that's gonna cause some complications we're gonna see i think next week in a future episode but uh yeah checklists are everything and, and you know and you know that in air traffic control i mean that's just well we don't we do nothing without a checklist. Yeah. Same you know in the pilot everything i mean it's, yeah. uh, it's all by the checklist. Yeah i mean when people when people wonder why every time you get on an airplane they explain how a seatbelt works, that's part of the checklist, and you're going to go through it because you got to make sure everybody knows what they're doing and assume that nobody uh, already knows what you're talking about. Um, yeah, and as our society goes down the road, fewer and fewer people, I think, know how to wear a seatbelt, too, by yeah. the way. So. <laughs> <It's> a, <laughs> anyway, that's a whole other show. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it's a – yeah, it's a – 
it's uh, it's fascinating, you know. And all these guys are, I mean, t turning it back to uh, where where you work, the, all these guys know stuff because of what they learned, you know, in their first day of flight training. And this is something that you know you pick up how to how to do things like emergencies are only emergencies are only a problem if you don't know how to handle an emergency and all these guys have handled an emergencies you know they've they've had to uh, learn what you do with an engine out what to do when your fuel pump isn't working what to do you yeah. know all of these things are not like they've they've been they've been practiced at having disasters so when a disaster actually strikes, they're equipped not to panic. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, and they, as they mentioned, sort of in the you know earlier parts of the movie, where you know uh, um, when they're training in the sim, and you know Jim says, "If uh, if I had a you know a dime for every time you killed me, I wouldn't have to work for Deke anymore." Uh, you know, that's very true. I mean, you overtrain as a single engine uh, pilot. I can tell you that you you train and train and train and train for engine out procedures i mean that is yeah uh, and you know picking out your field and making an emergency landing um i actually did have to make an emergency landing once and uh, i could tell you that all of that training you don't realize that it's embedded in your head as much as it is but when you have to make that kind of a landing um it's it's instant you don't even think about it you're just doing it yeah before you yeah. know before my my uh brain was even really registering what i was doing I already picked out a field. I had my door unlatched. I'd hit my best glide speed. Uh, I mean, it was uh, it was instant. I mean, it, yeah, you're you're ready to go. And... Yeah, exactly. And it's that training that you fall back to that uh, that does that. Wow. Did you get your deposit back? I didn't know if <laughs> <laughs> it was a safe, uh, mainly uneventful landing, but it was okay. a, it was a precautionary landing. Oh, good. Okay. Well, that, that's good. You're here, you're here talking with us, so I know I came, everything came out okay. Everything came out. It was it was it was a good landing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no. As long as you, and you, to, like, use, you were able to use the airplane the next day too, so it was awesome. Thing. That's yeah. yeah, that's the best. That's the best news. And exactly. You, yeah. yeah. If you didn't, if you didn't set up a G meter and things. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 nothing like that. <laughs> wow. But yeah, that's uh, and yeah, you know, it's, it's it's fascinating how you know space space flying a spacecraft is is an amazing and difficult task. But it all builds up from just the simplest things. You know, it builds up from the first day you climb into a cockpit and, and learn, you know, how to read dials and things. So all of this stuff is within the reach of people that learn, you know, learn how to fly. If you learn how to fly, you can eventually wind up here. You know, I mean, it takes a lot of, you have to have a space program to, to do that with. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, that's how, if that, that would be step one. I'd say if you want to yeah. be an astronaut, go learn how to fly a plane. Yeah, absolutely. It, it certainly gives you, um, you know, the, a great foundation in it. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it. Uh, the, the vocabulary, yeah. The vocabulary, uh, the sense of what to do when, uh, the just the style of training that you go through. It's all very similar. Um, just it's just a really good foundation. Yeah, yeah, and you get that that sense. Well, what what UATC guys call the flick. You get the that sense of what you know, what the where you're sitting in space and how everything else is, how, how everything you do in an air, in an aircraft or a spacecraft reacts to what you do. So, you know, being able to have that, that construction in your head, it, it all starts at the, you know, getting, getting in a 152 and going up in the air. So anyway, it just, it's, uh, it, it's really tough watching this, but re one of the things that uh, you know, getting back off, off the science part and getting back into the movie part of this, 
um, one of the things I'm really impressed by in this is um, is James Horner's uh, music, the soundtrack that comes through here. Uh, as they're watching, you know, if if you watch just within this minute fifty nine, the music starts with a a slight snare drum. Uh, you know, they're they're like counting down seconds, and it's da da dum da da dum da da, and everything's coming apart. Every, everything, you know, it's not it's not working. And then uh, when we get to uh, Jim Lovell saying, uh, "Freda, how long does it take to uh, power up the lem?" and he says three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. You get the timpanis coming in, da da dum da da. So that means like. They're all jumping on their horses and getting ready to just go and do what they need to do, and uh, and Horner's score underlines that so dramatically, so perfect. When you're sitting in a in a big theater, you're like, uh oh, this is you know, it, it it's just that little shove that that gives you the the feeling of now they're doing something about this problem. Yeah, the I, I the minute you say James Horner, it's just like, well, it's good. I yeah. don't even, I don't even <laughs> have to hear what what he's gonna play. Uh, I mean, that goes back. I think he also did Backdraft, which I thought was an amazing right. score. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, a little a little uh, soundtrack called The Rocketeer. I particularly right, I've heard of that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's pretty good. <laughs> um, so, um, you can't. But, yeah, and the soundtrack. It, some movies, the soundtrack is just background noise. In a Horner, uh, it, it just seems it's it's part of the movie. Like, in, yeah, it's almost another character. I mean, it is. Uh, it is, and certainly in Apollo thirteen, in my opinion, in Backdraft as well. I mean. Uh, um, I gotta tell you, I was a volunteer firefighter for a while, and in, you know that, that that score from Backdraft was in some of the fire trucks. Um, wow. I mean, that that was something that some of those guys used to get kind of fired up. So, <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, the first time I, the first time I had heard about Horner was um, uh, Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, and I think his entire his music vocabulary comes out of that. You kept hearing the da da dum 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 that that whole sound. Uh, you heard that in you know in things like aliens and in in titanic anytime he wanted to move you forward you you knew that horner cadence that he'd play and uh you know you felt it and i, I ever you know ever since wrath of khan i've been a big gigantic horner fan and it was it was you know if you saw his name in the credits you're like oh this yeah. is gonna be a pretty good movie yep and i gotta tell you like i said before i i went to uh um huntsville and um took the elevator up to the second floor that you uh, get, you know, to the Saturn V building, and uh, the doors open just to the, the first drum beats that you hear at the beginning of our show, you know, the yeah. opening the, and, but when the doors open, that music kicks off, and there's the end, business end of a Saturn V that you're looking at. Yeah. Um, I, you almost, it's emotional. I mean, you almost get choked oh, it, up, because it's like, oh my God, this is this is something else. <laughs> it is. And you know, nothing, nothing can really knock you over <laughs> literally and figuratively like a, like a Saturn five. When you see that, that S one C stage pointed at you, I, my, one of my favorite uh, views of this, and I think I've talked about this before is uh, if you go to the Apollo Saturn five center at uh, Kennedy, at the Kennedy space center, they have a, uh, a recreation of uh, the uh, launch control center that was next to the VAB. And you'd watch the launch of Apollo 8, and they'd show, they'd show the whole launch, and the, the walls would rattle, and you'd get the whole feeling of what it was like being in the launch control when, uh, when an Apollo was launching off. And Jim Lovell would come on the screen at the end of the whole thing and say, when you walk through the doors to your right, you're going to see a real Apollo uh, Saturn V that's just like the one that took you know the three of us to the moon. And um, it, when those doors opened and people walked out, uh, 
I've never seen a, a greater um, visual representation of the word gobsmacked. <laughs> people people seeing their first Saturn V for the first time, they just I, I I get to the point now when I go when I go to the Apollo Saturn V Center, I I run out just so I can be first to turn around and look back at the people seeing their first Saturn V because oh, it's just such awesome. a, it's such an amazing scene. And it, even teenage kids, jaded teenage kids, <laughs> will be just like, "Wow!" <laughs> uh, I was. Uh, we went to uh, Johnson Space. Uh, yeah, yeah, Mission yeah. Control, and uh, they have that one there, and uh, that yeah. was the first one my wife had ever seen. Oh. And uh, same thing. I mean, she just. It was exciting because I drag her to a lot of air museums, and uh, it was cool to see her so excited. Where she was like, "I just can't get over this thing." Like, <laughs> you know, it's just it's beautiful yet looking powerful and. You know, she got, it, it was just this uh, uh, thing where she just was like, I thought it was these things were the size of basically a big missile. Yeah, and yeah, like, like a DC three or something. Just right, like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, and she's like, uh, you know, had no idea. You know, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I just, highly recommend if you haven't been to a place who has one. Um, yeah, make your way there. <laughs> there's three of them in the U.S. So get it. Actually, there's four if you count the one that's the the the, the model that's standing upright in, in yeah. Huntsville. And that's actually, you know, I know it's a model. Uh, that's yeah. really worth the trip there. A, because yeah. you're going to get to see a real one. But B, there is something about seeing one vertically. Yeah. You know, even yeah. though it's a replica, it boy, it it's, yeah, it's it's, it's powerful two, to see that two two thirds the height of the Washington Monument. You yeah, know? it's yeah. it's twice as tall as the Statue of Liberty, and it's just mind-boggling when, when you're <laughs> up against it when i was a kid when uh, i went to see the launch of apollo 10 we took the we took the uh the kennedy tour and they were stacking apollo 11 when we got there they were just finishing stacking and i saw it in the vab and i was a i was a nine-year-old kid and i thought you know in my head that was the biggest thing i'd ever seen in my whole life and it was a, you know it was a gigantic i remember the one of the facts about the thing was it was you could fit four United Nations building in, inside the VAB, and this thing was up near the ceiling where they were, you know, where they're putting things together. <laughs> and I, I, when I looked back on it, I always thought, well, that was just a, you know a little kid me. Everything looked really big, but <laughs> as a grown adult, when I when I saw a Saturn V again at the at the Saturn V Center, even on its side, it's just you you really have to catch yourself because yeah. you, you want to go wow. <laughs> yeah, you. Do and it's just massive. Yeah, yeah. So highly recommended on on, on all counts. <laughs> well, anyway, that's uh, we're we're down to uh, 15 minutes of oxygen left, and the uh, the command module will be dead on this particular minute. But we'll we'll pick we'll pick some uh, uh, some more stuff up uh, tomorrow and talking more about how they can how they can rescue uh, poor Odyssey and Aquarius. Uh, up there in the depths of space but uh for folks who have missed any previous episodes go out and pick up uh, all of our first hour now uh, out there on the apollo 13 minute uh, uh podcast website apollo 13 minute.com you can find us on itunes or google play just search for apollo 13 minute and click subscribe and you get it delivered hot and fresh every day uh Talk back to us, please. We are always available on Twitter, Apollo 13 Minute. You can find us on Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control. And we'll, we'll, we do respond. Trust me. We, we get a lot, of, a lot of discussions going. It's a lot of, a lot of exciting meeting other, other people who really love space and love Apollo and, uh, and everything in between. <laughs> so so re- reach out to us if you can. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow and talking some more about getting a, getting a, a lunar module lifeboat together. Uh, looks like we're coming up on loss of signal in about 30 seconds, so we will see you here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute.